Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. On today's show, we have two interviews. The first is with Brad Rothenberg, whose group, Alianza de Football, discovered Jonathan Gonzalez, and who's angry that U.S. soccer isn't doing enough to attract Latino talent. This is not just because of Jonathan. There are too many kids, there are too many boys who don't ever rise to Jonathan's level who could have opportunities playing in the youth system if only the Federation would change their definition of what they're looking for when they say they're out looking for the best talent. My second interview is with comedian Jay Baruchel and journalist Owen O'Callaghan about their newly released film, Celtic Soul, which details their journey to Ireland and Scotland to experience what it means to be a fan of Celtic. St. Mary's Church and Brother Walfred, they knew the same way we need to give these families a loaf of bread. We need to give these kids uh, something to do to keep them out of trouble and to keep them disciplined and to give them something to believe in. And so uh, they got a loaf of bread and a soccer ball and it was of equal importance. And it begs mentioning that you flash forward to this day, both are still of equal importance. You know, Celtic isn't just a soccer team. Uh, That loaf of bread is still just as important as the soccer ball is today. All that and more coming up. Our guest today is Brad Rothenberg, a co-founder of Alianza de Football, which created a talent search for Latino soccer players in cities around the United States a decade ago called Sueño Alianza. Midfielder Jonathan Gonzalez from Northern California was the winner of Sueño Alianza in 2013 and signed a contract with Monterrey in Mexico. Gonzalez made the Liga MX Best 11 at age 18 and recently decided to play for Mexico instead of the United States after playing for the U.S. at youth level. In a widely discussed article for Soccer America by Mike Waitala, Rothenberg, who's the son of former U.S. soccer president Alan Rothenberg, expressed his dismay and anger with U.S. soccer over what it did not do to land Gonzalez, attributing U.S. soccer's failure to, quote, arrogance, apathy, or incompetence, end quote. Brad, thanks for joining the show. That's quite an intro. Thank you. Lots to talk about here, and you and I have talked on the phone recently in advance of talking today. Um, You know Jonathan Gonzalez and his family very well by now. Are you still angry about U.S. soccer's failure here? Yeah, I I think anger, disappointment, frustration is what boiled up when Mike interviewed me and we've been doing this for over a decade and it was kind of a decade of sitting on my sitting on my hands and just trying to get along and so this is not just because of Jonathan there are too many kids there are too many boys who don't ever rise to Jonathan's level who could have opportunities playing in the youth system if only the federation would change their definition of what they're looking for when they say they're out looking for the best talent. So, backing up a little bit, could you explain what Alianza de Football is and how it started? Uh, well, we started the Alianza is a broader program than just Sueño. It's uh, an opportunity for Latino boys and girls and men to live their dreams of soccer. And sometimes the dreams are as simple or as local as just having good places to play with quality competition. So, way back in 2004, we launched this oper- this program where we had unaffiliated adult teams competing against other unaffiliated teams just to determine who was the best you know, local team champion because they never would play against each other. Mm-hmm. Well, it evolved over the years with coaches clinics, youth clinics, youth programs, girls uh, tournaments as well. 
And but the real sort of flag that, that we waved in the community was this program called Allianz, a Sueño Allianz, where we gave kids a chance to be seen. It's an open tryout. We have two age groups, but the real value of this is there's no there's no merit criteria. You know, any kid can show up and try out. Uh, and then we have scouts, many of whom flew at their own, fly at their own expense from Mexico to see these kids. We bring the best kids together over the weekend, and then the top 20 will play against the local DA, a development academy club, oftentimes uh, with our partnerships with the local MLS teams. And over the years, we've had 51 kids go to some go on from our program to a local development academy with an MLS club to Mexico, Honduras. And several kids have made it into uh, professional ranks in Mexico. And we also have a foundation, and we've got 22 boys and girls going to college this year with our help. Not necessarily because we pay them, but pay for them, but because we arrange for scholarships or other programs. We're totally agnostic. We're not player agents. We're just a bridge for these kids to see, be seen by the best, and give their dreams life. Yeah, I, I mean. We're talking about a lot of kids uh, from around the country in the United States, a lot of different cities, and we've always heard that, especially with Latino players in the United States, so many slip through the cracks. So what have you guys been doing that other programs have not been doing to reach these Latinos? Well, I'll be the first to say that we're not doing very much. What we're doing is significant because we're doing it, but the Federation should be doing what we, we're doing. I, my jo I joke with my dad, who you acknowledged in the intro, that if the Federation had been doing this a long time ago, I could have been the lawyer that he wanted me to be, but <laughs> they weren't. So you know, when we go to Los Angeles, a huge market where there's probably a couple million kids under the age of 20 that are of Latino descent, we only get about six or 700 kids because that's all we can take. We only have one field. We only have one day to try out these kids. That is an insignificant number. Um, and I also want to clarify, I don't think we're generally finding kids that no one knows about. Mm -hmm. But we, Jonathan's a good example where with our, my good friend Hugo Perez, Jonathan wasn't getting the opportunities that Hugo, his coach, thought he should be entitled to, to get. And it was because he came to Allianz and was seen by clubs in Mexico and ultimately chose to go to Monterey that he did get this opportunity. Now, if our federation was doing their job, and I don't blame, you know, Tab Ramos seemed to be taken personally when uh, my article came out. But this is not Tab's fault by a long shot. There should be someone assigned at the federation to take care of these kids, not just the Latino kids, but all these boys and girls to make them feel like they're part of something much bigger than themselves. Some of them already do it intuitively, but some need a little help. Jonathan was not being taken care of by the Federation. They should have been so happy that he was trained in Monterey, where he excelled. And if they had stayed on top of the relationship properly, Jonathan would be playing for the United States. He would have been developed in Monterey with more opportunity than he would have had here. And he would have been a U.S. national team player. I want to talk more about this specific Jonathan Gonzalez situation because it's certainly not the only one. It won't be the last time by any means. You've got a situation where a player is choosing between playing for Mexico and the United States. Uh, you got to know him in 2013. Um, obviously, he's done very well at Monterey, uh, and he was a youth player for U.S. youth national teams. And I guess my question would be, where where did this 
What exactly should U.S. soccer have done? What did they not do to land him for the senior national team? I think it's there's, it's binary. There's two things here. One is, I, and I don't know that this was necessarily Jonathan's problem, but there's other issues that I've heard about from other Latino players. Is they don't feel like their style of play is appreciated. So I think, as I said earlier, the Federation has to expand their definition of what a talented youth player looks like in the United States now. Our vision has been very narrow, and we've got some excellent players who've come through that vision. Mm-hmm. But to do what we need to do to really uh, expand our universe of talent, we need to look for different types of players and create a system where they're welcomed. The second thing, you know, it, it really in the case of, of Jonathan is that we have such a big country, this, the Federation isn't big enough or it doesn't have a department that's deep enough to manage these kids, to let them know that there's going to be ups and downs and there's going to be a cycle to their development. Uh, Jonathan was part of the U-17 cycle uh, and, you know, had an opportunity there. He wasn't picked to go to the national, to the World Cup. And then he was, uh, there was an opportunity for him to play for the U-20s, but he, he didn't ultimately go to the World Cup. But those things alone did not cost us, Jonathan. And uh, even when Dave didn't pick him to play against Portugal in November, a lot of people say that was the final straw. There was no final straw. And I know this because I know the family. And I was with Jonathan the day before he decided he was going to Mexico. And the the fact is that it was a, an accumulation of a lack of attention. When we said we were communicating with him, we weren't talking to him. We weren't flying to Monterey to see him play. There were random text messages kind of left to tab to be the lead on this. And it wasn't enough. And it's evidence that, there, as you said, there will be more. Because until we change the way we handle kids like this, there are, we are going to lose kids that have dual citizenship to Mexico. And by the way, I'm glad for Jonathan that he's there. Do I wish in my heart he was playing here? Yes. But given all the, the facts, it was, it was an easy decision for someone, to make, for someone like him to make. They took care of it and they paid attention. We didn't. Yeah, what exactly did Mexico do? It certainly sounds like Dennis DeCloza had a huge impact uh, on helping with Mexico's case to Jonathan. Yeah, I, know, I knew Dennis originally when we both were working with Chivas USA. He is a, a genuine, great guy. He cares about the players. And he would call us, he would call my associate, Joaquin Escoto, and ask if Jonathan was still determined to play for the U.S. And for a couple of years, that was the only message we could send him. As recently as September, that was the message. Hmm. And it really wasn't until November that Dennis became assertive and called and said, I am going to write up a plan for Jonathan. There will be no promises, but I'm going to put it in front of him. And I said, great. I'm happy for Jonathan that he might have an alternative. Hmm. Dennis got more involved over Christmas week when he decided to come here and meet with the family directly. From what I, I wasn't there, but from what I understand, they laid out the plan, again, with no promises. Um, Osorio called Jonathan directly mm-hmm. and had already seen him play in Monterey twice. Dennis had taken deep interest in Jonathan's personal welfare. And from everything I heard back from Alonzo, Jonathan's father, Dennis was genuine, professional, and honest. And I referenced that in the interview with Mike because that's the kind of integrity we need as a federation to communicate to these kids. As I said earlier, Tab Ramos should not be responsible for maintaining these relationships. This is just too big for one U20 coach to handle. Now, this week, Hercules Gomez at ESPN reported some really interesting things. Uh, he had spoken to Jonathan Gonzalez's father, who said 
that uh, the claim from Thomas Rangan, the former U.S. soccer chief scout, that he had visited the house of the Gonzalez's three times was not true at all. Um, Gomez then contacted Rangan, who uh, agreed with that characterization, said he had given the wrong information in a public interview. Um, that's sort of shocking to me that uh, <laughs> the U.S. soccer would, uh, would lie about this. Um, and, and the process, and, and right now, seems to be more defensive than anything. Instead of necessarily raising your hand and saying, we've got to do better, we've got to do these things. What was your perspective on all mm-hmm. this? Yeah, my perspective, well, first of all, Herc got it right. And Herc is still digging in on this story, and he's getting more information. And from what he's told me, he has, the, he has even more information that is accurate. It's unfortunate that the Federation individuals feel defensive because – it is not any individual's fault. It is a systemic failure. And it is from the offices in Chicago on down. You know, the, 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 the new leadership, whoever he or she is, I think will change things. If we pick the right person, the Federation will change their systems. And this, there won't be, you know, Thomas Rongen isn't the right guy. I've known Thomas since I was 17 and he came to play for the team that my dad owned, the Aztecs. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I, I would not pick anybody else besides Thomas to go out and have a drink with because he's very fun and entertaining. But it's not right to send him to be the, the, the liaison to a Latino boy who's grown and been, who's been born and raised in Santa Rosa. It, it, it just is an ill fit. We need a better idea of what, of how to be culturally sensitive. Mm-hmm. And I say culturally sensitive because it does not necessarily need to be a Latino. Um, obviously, someone who speaks Spanish, but someone who understands the culture, who actually appreciates the style of play, is going to be the way we succeed in cultivating these relationships. Well, I also, you know, I also think you know, no one's really asked, but I don't think the development academy or the pay-to-play system are necessarily they're not the problem here. Mm-hmm. The problem is how the, the, the development academies and the pay-to-play system are not going away, or the pay-to-play isn't, and shouldn't. They serve a, pers- a part of this community, and it works. What we haven't done is taken the money out of the coffers of the Federation to expand what we could do. Okay, That's what's frustrating okay. to me. Yeah, I mean, there was also a report uh, in Hercules Gomez's ESPN work uh, that Richie Williams, the former USU 17 coach, had given a 10-minute ultimatum to the Gonzalez family, according to Jonathan's father, uh, to decide whether he wanted to go to the U.S. residency in Florida. Um, There's been some dispute on that as of this interview we're doing here today. Richie Williams denying that's the case. What, What have you heard about that? I mean, I, I talked to Alonzo, too, and yes, I, I've heard what's been reported. I don't know what actually happened or what may have been misconstrued. Mm-hmm. Um, again, there's a cultural issue that's at play here. It's Alonzo's English is perfect. He understands it. Uh, he is as devoted to – he's just incredibly devoted to his kids and would would always want his kids to be treated with respect and fairness. If somehow he, it was conveyed by Richie – in a phone call, that was the message. You have 10 minutes to decide. I don't dispute Alonzo's interpretation of that. Okay. Okay. Um, it's also consistent with, you know, Edwin Lara also complained about Richie's behavior um, toward him. Even when I understood the 
the specifics on that one were that Richie didn't want Edwin and the other Latino gets speaking Spanish on the back line during games, which I think is a fair thing to do. But somehow the way it was conveyed was either misinterpreted or intended as a slight. And it wasn't ultimately Edwin Lara went to Mexico as well. And these are, this is, again, I don't even blame Richie Williams. There should be somebody else. There should be a system in place handling these interactions in a way that is respectful and professional. Before I go any further, I figure I should also ask, you mentioned earlier that Alianza uh, is not an agent. You, do, you guys don't work as agents. How does Alianza make its money? We live on the backs of corporate partnerships. Um, and we do have other business that we do. Uh, we have a digital Spanish language platform called Hugo TV, and we also represent we have some marketing rights. So some of the retired Mexican players come through us and we get them personal appearances and such. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 90, over 90% of our revenue for Alianza comes from corporate sponsors uh, like you know Coca-Cola, Powerade, Allstate, Telemundo's our, our broadcast partner. Mm-hmm. And then there are some fees for some of the tournaments, but those are way below market. Um, and the idea there is if we were their player agents, I think, the community would not trust us to the extent that they have these last 15 years and our business would be, would be different. Um, so that's the, that's the model. You know, it isn't a great business. Uh, it, it's years to get profitable, but it's been an incredibly wo- rewarding experience to be involved in this, in this whole, in this process. One thing that stood out to me in the soccer America story by Mike Waitala and everyone listening should read that, uh, if you get a chance, um, is that U.S. Soccer Director of Talent Identification, Tony Lepore, told you in 2016 that U.S. Soccer was not interested in participating in Alianza. Is that accurate? And what's the story? Uh, yeah, that's accurate. He sent, a, he sent an email outlining three things. One was that uh, they hadn't found any talent through the system, uh, which, again, maybe the maybe be might be suggestive of a reason why they need to expand their definition of talent since right now on that front pachuca has eight other boys that were born and raised in the united states that were of of dual nationality and i know marco garces really well who's the scout the head scout there the technical director and he says at least one or two of those boys are a step or two just a step or two behind jonathan Hmm. so they didn't find talent. The second reason was that they said that we were in violation of their development academy rules. So if we found a kid, we put him into a local development academy with, say, FC Dallas. Later in the year, we would invite that kid back to our national finals. And the rules at the development academy were that if that kid left, he would be sanctioned. Now, those aren't our rules because we're not part, we're not affiliated, not part of U.S. soccer. But as a result of those rules, they unilaterally chose basically strip these kids of their opportunity to play in the development academy when they came to try out for us. The third reason was they claimed that we were in violation of FIFA's Article 19 rule, which is when you take a kid from one country and he's a minor and he goes to another country. And it was created largely from by you know, to stop what UEFA clubs were doing by taking African kids, mm. bringing them for tryouts, then dropping them on the streets. It's very different what is happening with a kid like Jonathan Gonzalez. Mm-hmm. Um, again, if I was someone from U.S. soccer and I saw that a kid here had a right, had an opportunity to go to be developed by Pachuca, Monterrey, Chivas, or Mexico, and still be eligible to play on my national team, I talked to Tab about this. Tab was happy to have him stay in Monterrey as long as he came back to play with us. Mm-hmm. We do a better job in those relationships 
sending them to Mexico is good for the U.S. Soccer Federation. So those were the th three things that Tony outlined. Um, and the first one is kind of subjective. They didn't find talent. The other two, I think, are misplaced. One, because we are not in violation of any rules, and I think they should look into those rules if they in any way hardship children young boys or girls who are trying just to play soccer. And the third reason that, you know, we're in our violation of Article 19 is kind of spurious too, because it, sending kids to Mexico to be developed is good for U.S. soccer. Okay. Um, you mentioned Hugo Perez earlier, obviously a guy who played for the U.S. national team in World Cups, who was coaching in the U.S. soccer system uh, until a couple of years ago, was let go from U.S. soccer, uh, coached some very talented players that we're seeing emerge now um, who play in the U.S. national teams. Um, and has it had a, a real connection to, to Alianza? What is your sense of Hugo Perez's story in recent years, especially as it connects to U.S. soccer and why U.S. soccer doesn't seem to want him? Well, what happened between him and U.S. soccer, I only know anecdotally, but I know Hugo. I know him. I've known him for 27 years, and he is a <laughs> he is also a really genuinely excellent human being. Mm -hmm. um, he speaks his mind. He doesn't shout or yell. He speaks his mind very directly, and I assume that he ruffled some people's feathers who really didn't agree with his opinion. Now, we all in life and business and families and relationships, you have to get along with people who have great qualities and can be an overall value to you. Somehow they didn't manage to maintain, they didn't manage to respect Hugo's abilities and overlook whatever issues they may have had. I have never found Hugo to be disruptive, argumentative. He's a man of strong opinions who obviously has some very unique insights into talent. It's a mistake that he's not part of the Federation. It's a mistake that we don't have more, more, dis, more uh, diverse eyes looking at talent in this country. Uh, when you look at, I guess, moving forward uh, in the future, obviously there's a contentious U.S. soccer presidential campaign going on right now ahead of an election on February 10th. Uh, we'll see what comes out of that, I guess. Um, do you see, especially, I'm, I'm curious to hear, I guess, what kind of response you got to the Soccer America story, and do you see an actual advance in terms of people in U.S. soccer and, and MLS teams even um, connecting more with your group, Alianza? You know, I don't know. I sure hope so. I'll say this, that the Mexican clubs, as I said, they spend time and money coming to our events. The MLS clubs and the cities we're in are incredibly supportive. I would like U.S. soccer to decide that this was a viable program. By the way, as a marketing venture, it's a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. The fact that we're going into dozens and dozens of communities and parts of the country that they never go, where their brand is almost unknown, they should be coming along. But I don't even care about that part. I really care about who wins because, again, I've known some of these people for a long time. I sound like the oldest man in the world I know. <laughs> I've known Kathy for 26 years. I've known Eric for 22. Paul has done a lot of work with Allianz in the past. Several of them contacted me after that article. But the only one who really spoke up specifically about what she wanted to do is Kathy Carter. Hmm. And I really think she's going to be, if she wins, she'll be an excellent voice of change and competence. Um, 
And I know that all the candidates are running on some level, you know, some type of change in transparency. Um, I'm frustrated that Carlos, who's been at the Federation for such a long time, never reached out to us uh, and has watched. You know, he, he was there for 10 years while nothing happened to improve our state of uh, development. And it's frustrating to me that, you know, I, I think Kyle seems like a great guy. And I know Eric. And with more seasoning, those guys might be qualified to be president, too. Um, I, I just as I look at this, I think I've never worked with Kathy. I mean, we've been at the same, you know, we, we worked at different soccer companies together. But mm -hmm. she when she's been in her capacity at some, she's never hired us. She's never worked with me. She's made zero promises to me. I'm not even part of her formal campaign. Mm -hmm. I just don't expect that the Federation will work with us. We, we exist without them. But I know that the. What I've heard from the different candidates, she's the only one who seems like she's, A, very interested in the women's game and very interested in expanding uh, opportunities for kids outside, not just the kids that are inside the affiliated system, but beyond it. Well, Brad Rothenberg, lots to talk about, obviously, as, as we've done here, and I think moving forward in the future. So uh, I don't think this will be our last interview for this podcast, but appreciate you taking some time to talk. We're going to talk again when one of those kids from Pachuca ends up in Mexico when he should have been playing for the U.S. <laughs> we shall see. We shall see. But thanks, Brad. I appreciate it. Thanks, Grant. Take care. I want to thank Brad Rothenberg for that interview. Our next interview is with Jay Baruchel and Owen O'Callaghan about their newly released film, Celtic Soul. Our guests today are comedian and actor Jay Baruchel. You've seen him in This Is The End, among other things. And journalist Owen O'Callaghan, who you no doubt remember from the late, great show, The Fox Soccer Report. They've made a film called Celtic Soul, which follows them from Canada to Ireland to Glasgow as they celebrate their fandom of the club Celtic and everything that comes with it. The film was just released on January 30th on Kicking and Screening's new distribution platform for soccer films, and you can get it on iTunes, Google Play, Hulu, or any of your favorite platforms. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Us. <laughs> we are doing a three-way on Skype here, so um, this is the first time I've ever done this. I'm sure it will go perfectly. Uh, first off, congratulations on a terrific film. I think soccer fans just about anywhere are are going to love it. And I guess I just wanted to start by asking, how did you two first come together? Uh, um, well, I, uh, via, via social media. Um, no, it was just, uh, as you, you mentioned in the intro that Owen used to be uh, on the Fox soccer report and that's a show that I was, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty avid fan of. I, I would watch it every single night, five nights a week. And, uh, around that time is when I started on Twitter and, uh, when I saw, uh, his little cherubesque face on there, uh, in, in a suggested, uh, in a suggested follow cause, uh, a pretty big soccer fan and, uh, and yeah. And so I, I took Twitter's suggestion and gave him a follow and, uh, it's a good thing I did, uh, because, uh, because look at you know we we ended up doing this 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 pretty cool this pretty cool thing together, um, but uh, but yeah it all started with it all started with literally just uh, me sliding into Owen's DMs probably. <laughs> I mean it's interesting to me. I mean uh, I watched the Fox Soccer Report a lot myself, 
uh, over time. And, and Owen and I have talked about someday doing an oral history of the Fox Soccer Report. We'll save that for a different discussion on a different day. Um, but how did this idea come together for you two to do this film? Um, I think it was initially, initially we just kind of swapped some messages back and forth, just kind of saying hello and checking in with each other and that we, you know, we were kind of fans of each other and stuff. And and then I had about, I was out one night and I kind of had about, about, about five pints and I came back home and I was feeling a little bit braver than usual. And um, I, I had a little bit of a, a tiny idea about this, about a documentary and Celtic would be a big part of it. And, uh, I knew that Jay was was a big fan, and uh, feeling a little bit of um, feeling a little bit more brave than usual, I, I just uh, I, I sent him a, a message saying, "Hey, listen, if if I flesh this idea out a little bit more, um, you know, what what would you say to to doing this documentary about about Celtic?" And uh, I, I absolutely um, presumed that um, he would block me forever, and <laughs> and, and that would be the end. <laughs> And instead, um, his his response was was really positive, and um, and from there it just kind of it spawned. I mean, you know, the, I think the initial idea was a lot more historical. Um, you know, it, you know, it, it was it was going to be um, about lots of kind of former players and, and, and all that. And, and the initial idea I think was um, was just for Jay to do it on his on his own, um, and then you know. A, yeah, a little bit, you know, the steps kind of here and there, talking to a production company, hearing other people's advice, they suggested that that it might be, it, it might work better um, if the two of us kind of hung out and, and did this kind of road trip idea. So uh, like any sort of idea, it, it probably went through a, a couple of different um, identities um, before we kind of came, uh, finally came upon the one that, that we all settled on. I, I think the term identity is uh, a good way to get into the topic matter for the film itself. And I was wondering how you guys view sort of your relationship to Celtic and what Celtic represents in terms of identity and how we see that in this film. Yeah. Um, I think it's, if you, if you, especially if you grow up on, in this part of the world, uh, which is the quote unquote new world, uh, very common experience is um, is for you to define yourself uh, by where your parents or ancestors came from. You know, I, at least that was my experience. Um, you know, going to school, uh, certain kids would identify as Italian or Jamaican or Jewish or Korean or whatever. You know, and so I I was always I I think maybe that kind of the the sort of Canadian in me or in my family I led to me always being raised with a strong understanding of kind of where my mother's uh, family came from what part of the world they came from and um, and Celtic embraced that very same part of the world in a big way they you know it's they they, they lean into their Celticness and so it's um, yeah, and 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 when you pick a team slash a team picks you, that becomes one more kind of ingredient in 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 you. That becomes one more way for you to identify yourself and relate to people. And it's been it's been super cool for me to have kind of gotten in touch with this kind of 
yeah, this international family of of, of Celtic supporters because uh, the, the this fan base is incredibly incredibly widespread. Also, too, I, I'm curious to know like how you decided which places you just you ended up visiting in the film. You guys go from, as I mentioned, from Canada to Ireland to Scotland, and you conclude with seeing a game at Celtic Park. But there's a lot more to the film than just seeing the game at Celtic Park, which is fantastic. Um, how did you decide on which places you wanted to visit? Well, I think it, it, it kind of originated with with uh, with the story that we wanted to tell, which was, uh, you know, it, yeah, like I remember the earliest chats that we had together and like, Jay was very adamant. He's, he was saying, you know, let's just not make this a pious thing. Let's not make it something that we're, we're pointing a finger at, at people and telling them to do something, you know, let's, let's let's make it a, a kind of a funny adventure but with but with meaning and um i think the that that's you know it's, it's a testament to everyone involved that, that the tone of it is is just kind of exactly that that um you don't want to you know you want to let people um draw their own opinions as to as to what we mean by certain things and even even the locations that we visit you know we we want the audience to to take from those locations what they will so um i mean the immediate thing was was starting it off in montreal because um we had this kind of this little map of you know canada scotland ireland and and this kind of relationship that existed between between all these three places um and and it just it you know obviously jay was living there at the time it 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 made sense to to kind of begin the journey there but also jay's relationship with with a hockey team like the habs um was was something that we kind of wanted to use almost as a as a as a comparison to, to the celtic thing and and you know, if an audience wanted to draw their own comparisons between the, those two organizations, um, you know, they could do that. And we kind of introduced that element of uh, of a sacred uh, sports space, uh, which is the yeah. we're on, on center ice. And, and again, you know, later in the film, we want people to draw their, the, the, you know, their own um, thoughts on Celtic Park being another version of that, um, you know. And, and, and so it's, it's um, you know, it, it, it's weird because it, you know, for 90 minutes, it's probably, you know, a lot of it is two idiots in a car. But, um, you know, what we have learned through all this process is, you know, people, people pick up on all of these different things and, and people will tell you and people will send you messages about, oh, I love this part and I loved how it linked so heavily to this. And you're like, wow, you know, it worked. Hey, you know, wow, this this kind of plan has, has come off a little bit because, uh you know, it's it's uh, people can get lost in the sport element of it. People can get lost in, um, you know, the fun kind of silly joke element to it. But ultimately, um, like Jay said to me, like whatever, however many years ago, you know, there, you know, uh, you know, to, to do something with meaning. And uh, I, I think people have, have have picked up on just how mean, how much meaning there is in it as well. For both of yeah, you, in guys, a big way. yeah, I was going to ask for both of you guys. Was there a an unexpected favorite part? of the trip for you um i that's a no, that's a very good question um yeah i'll say i i mean i i think i always knew that going to uh, matt malloy's pub in, in westport and getting to see uh some local musicians uh play a bit of traditional music on the trad night i i i knew that that would be special but i i guess i wasn't prepared for just how directly uh, it hit me. Um, 
because that was also, you know, this is uh, part of the world, a very specific part of the world, uh, specific to me and to my family. And getting to go there and, and to sort of tap this vein, um, yeah, that I it was this kind of, I'm going to yeah, wax incredibly earnest right now and say that it was, uh, yeah, it, 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 it was... <sighs> It, it was kind of tran- transcendental almost. I, I, I was like uh, the 100, the 200 years separating me and my kind of ancestors vanished in that in that few hours at the bar there. And I and I just felt this uh, this crazy connection uh, to the point where I <laughs> screwed up the courage to wander back to the hotel by myself um, instead of waiting to go back with everybody who knew where the hell we were going. And I, and I got uh, highly lost uh, and wandered about Westport uh, in the arse end of the night by myself for like two hours and my phone died. Um, but I I found my way back and I, I, I knew I would. And so, uh, but it was all because of this, uh, this moment I got caught up in. And so, um, so yeah, like on the, you know, I, I always knew I'd love going to see Celtic play. I was not expecting the kind of astral projective quality of, of, uh, of going to see this band. For you, Owen, any unexpected favorite parts? Um, there's a, yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a few, um, if I had to, if I had to pick one, um, you know, I, I think, I think the, um, yeah, the, the, as an Irish person, um, it, it's, it's weird, um, showing other people around your country, um, you know, naturally you, you, you play everything down and you don't kind of get caught up in, uh, the, the the kind of emotion of uh, or the self praise of oh yeah hey listen isn't Ireland wonderful but when you're a tour guide you kind of have to do an element of that um, and it's weird because it does hit you um, you know Jay mentioned the Westport thing um, and getting to walk with him uh, you know down this street where his ancestors lived genuinely lived you know two hundred years before um, it was kind of you know it was it was goosebumpy you know it it was it was pretty surreal um you know to 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 kind of be facilitating a special moment in another person's life in your country um so that was that was pretty wild but i mean i have to kind of say that um you know winning the crossbar challenge um at lennoxtown and beating charlie mulgrew and scott brown and jay baruchel um, is is essentially out of, outside of my wedding. Um, I think my life highlight. So those would be my two. This is also, in many ways, a buddy film, and uh, there's a genre there. I like the fact that it's a very you guys are an authentic buddy, you know, twosome in there, and I don't feel like anything's <laughs> a put on or or whatever. You know, it, it makes me think a little bit of the movie The Trip uh, with Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon. Yes, Grant yes, Grant Wall. Indeed, it does. Is I was I was going to ask: Is that a compliment or an insult? I hope it's a compliment. High, <laughs> high compliment. Yeah, that was one of the that was one of the reference points when we chatted about Celtic Soul in the very early days. Good to hear. Good to hear. Um, and I guess if you could just tell me a little bit about the the production. How long did it take you to to put all this stuff together and and what did you decide in the end well, to focus on stuff? Yeah, it 
it started with a, a conversation over the course of like a year and a half, two years, mm-hmm. and um, and then it kind of yeah snowballed uh, as we got producers involved and uh, more and more people kind of connected to what we were doing and saw that it could be something cool and uh, but in uh, yeah very. Uh, sort of pragmatic terms we uh we shot for like uh, a few days uh, like almost like five, three three to five days in uh, in montreal in the uh the dead of winter and then uh and then we shot like i think uh, a year later for about 10 days in uh in ireland and scotland is that right owen yeah uh, f- famously um the first day filming in ireland uh this is a testament to you know uh, Jay and and just what he brought to do. Uh, I'll embarrass him for a second, but he he literally stepped off a transatlantic flight from Canada and came straight to Crow Park to film for an entire day. Um, absolutely jet lagged and completely um, ruined with tiredness, but he still he still managed to do it. So um, the schedule was tight. Um, but it was, I mean, sometimes that's almost better, right? Because you're just on a drum um, But it was, it was crazy because we, the first kind of seven or eight minutes of the film, which is us in Montreal, um, I think was February 2015. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the film was done 12 months later. So we had this kind of massive hiatus in the, in, in the middle as we were trying to figure out some details and logistics and all that sort of stuff. Um, so it was it was crazy. You know, you had a it, it certainly built uh, built up your excitement because you, you had got a little taste of what the film was going to be like. Um, and then you, you just wanted to pull the trigger and and, uh, and get the rest of it done. And uh, yeah, that, that, that those those shooting days across Ireland, Scotland, lots of travel um you know a lot of driving a lot of near-death experiences um so yeah probably probably 12 days in total in terms of filming um that's that's about it yeah he uh uh i did the driving on this side of the uh of this side of the pond and uh and he did the driving everywhere else So it's hit me that maybe not all of my listeners to this show know totally about the relationship of why this club Celtic, which is in Scotland, has such a connection to Ireland. And I was wondering if you guys could explain that. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's very, very, very simple. Um, like most uh, like most organizations that kind of. Uh, claim or lean into uh irish culture it all it all stems from the uh kind of for the most part from the like famine and the uh, diaspora of the of the 19th century uh and uh and so yeah when, uh, just the same as uh the states in canada were flooded with uh with irish immigrants uh, during that time um there was a much closer port to them which was that of glasgow uh that had jobs etc uh, etc et and uh so they 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 came uh on mass in great numbers to glasgow um and um were not always completely welcomed uh, upon their arrival and uh and their the the sort of rank and file of the Irish poor you know swelled in the in the ghettos of Glasgow and uh, so St Mary's Church and Brother Walfred 
They knew the same way we need to give these families a loaf of bread. We need to give these kids uh, something to do to keep them out of trouble and to keep them disciplined and to give them something to believe in. And so uh, they got a loaf of bread and a soccer ball, and it was of equal importance. And it begs mentioning that you flash forward to this day, both are still of equal importance. You know, Celtic isn't just a soccer team. Uh, That loaf of bread is still just as important as the soccer ball is today. Yeah, I also just wanted to ask what it was like just personally for you guys, when you get toward the end of the film, you go and, and see the team training Celtic, and then you go to see a game at Celtic Park. And there's a real crescendo at the end of the film when that happens. What was that like for you guys to experience? Well, I just had like the only I, – I, it, 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 it begs mentioning that prior to going to Celtic Park for me – I'd only ever been to two uh, professional soccer uh, matches in my life. Uh, the first was Chester Rhinos at Montreal Impact in the uh, nice. in the he- the heady days of the A League uh, of the Montreal's participation in the A League, and then um, and then it was uh, Rushton and Diamond at Bristol Rovers, um, which <laughs> so I I, I had uh, never been never. Yeah, exactly. Spoiled for riches. You know, I, I was raised on a steady diet of uh, the world's great soccer cathedrals. No, no, quite the, op- quite the opposite. And, um, and uh, so, yeah, and, and where it came at the end of our journey and the fact that, you know, we were up there with, uh, with Greg Hempel, our friend, and, and it was just like, and, and they scored, they, 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 they scored exactly the, 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 the full-time score was exactly what I predicted it would be before the game started as well. So that was kind of neat. But um, but yeah, it was. Um, I, I've been wanting to go and see Celtic play for God knows how long. And so getting to do that, man, it was really, really special. It was really, really special. Yeah, I think it was. It's you know, in terms of um, you know, it's weird. We 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 screen this film and last year at the Glasgow Film Festival and they <laughs> they showed it on, on the final night and, and I, I went over there um, and I was so nervous you know it's like making a Habs documentary and showing it in the middle of Montreal or you know a Red Sox documentary and showing it at Fenway Park or something and um, you know it was an immense kind of pressure if, you know if, if they didn't like it you, you'd quickly know that they didn't like it um, but uh, we usually do a Q&A after after um, after every screening because people just tend to have lots of questions about it and uh, the Q&A finished normally it goes on so long like 30 minutes 45 minutes people just have all these questions um, and then people will just approach you to kind of get a photograph or just they just maybe want to talk to you and this guy this really quiet guy he must have been I'd say maybe in his 50s and he just taps me on the shoulder and uh, really kind of quiet unassuming Glaswegian guy and um, just kind of monosyllabic and he's you know hiya I uh, just wanted to congratulate you on, on the film you know you did a great job and I was ah oh, thanks a lot it mean, really means a lot and he said um I was just going to go home you know after this and, and just go back go back to my house but uh you know after watching that I'm going to go to the bar and I'm going to have a drink and toast the fact that I'm a supporter of that club and 
I wow. swear, wow. it was the nicest things. Because, uh, you know, it's like men of a certain generation who may not be very open in terms of how they're feeling and all that sort of stuff. And this guy was really kind of a uh, hardcore fan, and it was just a really authentic thing to say. And it's always stuck with me uh, in terms of uh, the, the reaction that it's got, that you that you still, for, for the, all these guys who go to games every week religiously, every time, it's like without Celtic, it's, it's their life is incomplete. But yet... Um, they can still get reminded of what the club means to them. You know, you might think that it's kind of, um, you know, just something now that's part of their fabric. Yeah. Or whatever. And it was just a, a really nice little moment where, you know, we got to have this experience and it was incredible. Um, these guys do it every week and they're kind of, um, they, they do that pilgrimage uh, so often. And yet, um, because the club and what it stands for is so special, you still have those hardcore supporters um, who, who, who get reminded every once in a while uh, that that uh, that they're 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 something pretty unique, essentially. Yeah, guys, I think you really hit it uh, in this film. I mean, I was expecting to laugh a few times, which I did, but there's also some really powerful moments that come with it, and you understand why that Celtic supporter was toasting his club afterward. Um, really appreciate you enjoying or coming on the show here. Um, the film is called Celtic Soul. It is out. It is out now. It came out January 30th. You can get it on iTunes, Google Play, Hulu, or any of your favorite platforms. Jay Baruchel and Ono Callahan, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us, Grant. That was just awesome. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Brad Rothenberg, Jay Baruchel, and Owen O'Callaghan, as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it wherever you get your podcast. It really does help the cause if you do. And check out the new 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray. That's available for free now on SI.com. Recent guests include Ali Wagner, Don Garber, Rob Stone, and Andres Contour. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network? Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.